Well, picture, if you will, <clears throat> two men, Evan and Paddy. Evan and Paddy, they've, uh, they've got a lot in common. They've known each other for a long time. They've both been um, living in the same small town uh, for quite a long time. They're both members of their uh, parish church, St. Ethelberg's, and um, Paddy and Evan, um, they're good friends. They've got a lot in common, but they've got um, a slightly different approach. Although they both go to the same church, they've got a slightly different approach on the way that they kind of live out their faith. Um, Evan is somebody who definitely wears his heart on his sleeve. I mean, all the guys he knows, all the guys in the office, all the guys in the pub, they all know he's a Christian. Uh, He's gentle and respectful uh, about the way that he speaks about his faith, but really, uh, he'll take any opportunity he can to share some spiritual encouragement with his friends, especially if they're struggling in some way. He'll be pretty quick to offer to pray for them or to pray with them. Perhaps he'll send them a text message with a Bible verse, um, something to encourage them. Uh, he's somebody who um, will constantly be trying to invite his friends and his neighbours along to things at church to try to share his faith with them. Um, in fact, he'll be offering to organise things at church so that he can invite them along um, to, to them. So really, Evan, he's, he's, um, he's evangelical, Evan. But private Paddy uh, isn't so sure about that. Private Paddy uh, is, finds evangelical Evan a little bit uh, enthusiastic for him. And to be honest, the way that he shares his faith makes him a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, Paddy would be pretty quick to say that his f- Christian faith was important to him, very important. Uh, but for him, faith is much more of a private thing. Um, it, he has his uh, beliefs, and his friends and family have their beliefs, and that's fine. We live in a multicultural and a pluralistic uh, society, and so everybody agrees that surely religion and politics are two topics probably best avoided in polite company. It's simply not British to be going on about religion all the time. Uh, if anybody asks him directly, of course he will say uh, he's a Christian, but he wouldn't be, want to be accused of foisting his views on other people. Evangelical Evan and private Paddy. I wonder who you identify with more. Are you the sort of Christian who longs for other people to come to know the Lord Jesus as well? Or are you the sort of Christian who actually is very happy to let the Lord work in his own mysterious way in the lives of other people? Or if you're not a Christian, and you're here this morning, or perhaps you're not sure whether you're a Christian, or you're thinking about becoming a Christian, sort of on the fringes of faith, and just weighing it up, and uh, as it were, on the outside looking in. In your opinion, what do you think Christians ought to be like? Should they be more like Evan or Paddy? Is it more appropriate for them? Should Christians really be the sort of people who share their faith with others, or should they keep it to themselves? What do you think? Well, uh, I read an article last month that reckoned that... Uh, there was recent research has shown that the British church is about 50-50 split. So the headline of this article said, sharing faith is a priority for around half of British Christians. And it went on to say that in a survey of 2,351 UK Christians, 49% agreed that it was important for Christians to share their faith with others. Presumably 51% thought it wasn't particularly important to share their faith. 
So I guess my question this morning is, I wonder whether we'd be that kind of a split, you know, maybe, I don't know how many of us we are here this morning, the clicker will tell us after the service, I wonder whether we would be about that kind of split, 49-51, something like that at St Michael's, maybe there are half of us here thinking we ought to be a little bit more like Evan, and then another half of us are going, we probably ought to be a bit more like Paddy, I wonder what you think. Well, it's the start of a new new year, and um, we're beginning a new series this morning, as you see behind me. Uh, called High Five. Now, I'll admit right at the beginning, this is an incredibly cheesy, not very imaginative title. I'm really sorry about that. I couldn't think of anything more imaginative. If you come up with something better, please let me know, and I'll change it for next week. Um, But we're spending five weeks thinking through our five top priorities as a church family. Um, and now you might not know that we've got top five top priorities as a church family. But when the role um, for team rector of Melksham was being advertised, which is obviously my job, um, when they advertise a, a post, they, there's two documents they put on the Diocese of Salisbury's website. One's a parish profile, which is about 30 pages long. And one is a job description, which is a page. And uh, I saw this and I thought, well, I quite like the look of coming to Melksham. And so I rung Archdeacon Sue and said to her, I've seen the parish profile, I'm thinking about putting in an application. She said, well, the parish profile is really important, but what's really important is the job description. And these five, on the job description, the one page simply had these five things. This is what we want any successful applicant to focus on. And I thought, oh, wow, okay, right. I've got to go away and bean up on, you know, what these five things are and what, you know, have come up with evidence to show that they've been my priorities in the past and how, if I was successfully appointed to come to the parish of Melksham, then I would make these my priorities as well. And so in the absence of any other decent candidates uh, being interviewed for the role, here I am. But I think when somebody goes for a job description, I guess there's a temptation to kind of try to tell people what they want to hear. Um, and then you've been there five minutes, and you think, well, right, well, I'm going to come up, well, I'm going to smuggle in my own priorities. Um, or you might think, well, look, let's, um, uh, let's come up with some new ones. But I guess I want to be just completely straight up and say, I don't want to do that, because I think these five priorities are brilliant. They really are. This is what I said to the bishop, anyway. Uh, and uh, they're, they're, they're biblical priorities, and I think they're really, they don't say everything that a church family ought to be up to, but they're pretty a good summary, I think, of the things which right ought to be at the top of the list of priorities. So what are they? Uh, uh, what, let me tell you, they are evangelism, discipleship, pastoral care, renewing the worshipping life of the church, and engaging the next generation. Evangelism, sharing our faith with others, discipleship, going deeper in our faith, perhaps going from being uh, acquaintances of the Lord Jesus to being wholehearted, committed followers of the Lord Jesus. The Bible, going from being a dusty book on the shelf to being our daily bread, discipleship. Pastoral care, the church becoming a place full of people who really love each other and really care for each other. Uh, renewing the worshipping life of the church was something that they identified. It's amazing to have had Mark and Alison leading our worship this morning. We've got James who's been playing the organ. Renewing the worshipping life of the church and reaching the next generation because we possibly are aware the church has not been successful at all recently at handing the faith on to its children. And I just think, wouldn't it be amazing, we're going to spend these five weeks at the start of this year taking those each in turn, wouldn't it be amazing if at the end of 2023 we were able to look back and go, by God's grace, wasn't it amazing that in these various different ways people, new people came to faith, those who were on the fringes of faith went deeper in faith, we became a more loving church, a more worshipping church, a more uh, youthful church. So that's what we're going to do, and beginning this morning with priority number one, evangelism. Now, 
I want to suggest, or perhaps do rather more than suggest this morning, that the PCC and the church wardens and the parish representatives and the patrons and the bishop and the archdeacon, but more importantly, the apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus himself, desire for our church to be less like private Paddy and more like evangelistic Evan. That's, the Lord Jesus doesn't want us to keep our faith to him ourselves. The Lord Jesus wants us to share our faith with others. That was the last thing he said. You may know that his parting shot was to give the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations. So what I want to do is acknowledging that that might make uh, some of us shift rather awkwardly in our seats. I think if I was sitting down, it might make me shift rather awkwardly in my seat to think that we've got to go out and share our faith with other people. I just want to spend the remaining few moments responding to perhaps three objections or three questions that might arise in our mind when we think about the subject of sharing our faith. Three kind of, hang on a minute, what about this? Which um, you may be thinking right now, and certainly it's my reaction um, to think these things. And the three objections are these. Firstly, do we have to? Uh, Secondly, is it appropriate to? And thirdly, I wouldn't know what to say. So those, when, when confronted with the idea of sharing our faith with others, we might go, well, do we have to? I wouldn't know what to say. It's not appropriate to. So that's what we're going to say. Those are the three things. So, first of all, do we have to? Do we have to share our faith? Does evangelism really have to be the church's number one priority? Well, if um, uh, uh, PT are able to click on, I think I've shown this graph before. Uh, This shows the rather sad trajectory of the British church. I mentioned an article at the start of this um, a moment ago, which drew a link, it really drew a pretty straight line between the lack of evangelism in the British church and the decline in Christian faith in this country. In fact, although I made that article sound rather neutral in the way that it said it was 50-50, in fact, the headline was not only half The headline was not half of uh, UK Christians think it's important to share their faith. The headline was only half. In other words, what a shame that only half of Christians in this country think they've got something worth sharing with other people. And that article said that that is one of the main reasons why the graph looks like this and the church is in decline. I think most people think that's quite sad. I'm going to guess that most of us think that's a a sad trajectory. I certainly do. I think most people want the church to grow. Let's click off that because it's too depressing. Thanks, Peter. Um, uh, My experience is that most people want the church to grow, even though since we've moved to Melksham, I think most people um, who don't go to church want the church to grow. I keep having conversations with all sorts of people in Melksham who go, oh, you know, brilliant, we want the church to grow. They don't go to church. I say, you're very welcome to join us. But I think, wouldn't it be amazing? Think of our town, think of our friends and neighbours and colleagues. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if more folk came to faith? If more people found... Uh, and experience salvation in the name of Jesus Christ and experience the forgiveness of sins and the peace and the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of prayer and the hope of heaven, wouldn't that be a good thing? I think so. But of course the thing is, people don't become Christians by accident. Nobody's ever become a Christian, you know, without somebody sharing the message with them. What does it take to become a Christian? Have a look if you've still got Romans 10 open in front of you. Have a look at verse 9. This is so simple, what it actually boils down to. If somebody becomes a Christian, this is what has to happen, verse 9. 
Uh, Paul says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, he's my Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you really believe in the resurrection from the dead, you will, you will, that's a promise, you will be saved. So becoming a Christian involves a, 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 a declaration, a proclamation of the Lordship of Christ and a heartfelt conviction of the resurrection of Christ. Now, some people get there without too much help from their neighbours. I think of one man in our previous church, who now he's in his 70s, but he became a Christian in his 30s. An amazing story, really. He hadn't actually had any church background to speak of, really. But he woke up in the middle of the night, uh, one night, and his room was filled with light. Jesus Christ was at the foot of his bed. A vision of Christ. He sat bolt upright in bed, and he knew exactly who it was, and he said two words. Yes, Lord. He, He declared him to be the Lord put his head back on his pillow, went to sleep. In the morning he woke up, went and found his nearest vicar and said, very strange things happened to me. What do I need to do? I don't think the vicar knew what to do with him. That's pretty rare, isn't it? I mean, this was, a, this was a sensible, educated, professional, you know, not given to flights of fancy or eccentricities of the imagination. We've just talked about epiphany. You know, those wise men had a star come to reveal the God. Yeah. This is pretty unusual. I think I've not met many people who've had a star or an angel or a visitation in the middle of the night in order to become a Christian. That's very rare. Most people, if they become a Christian, how do they become a Christian? It's because their friend introduced them to Christ. They had a friend who gently shared their faith with them, who who perhaps offered to pray with them, prayed for them, invited them along to church, suggested, why don't you do the Alpha course coming up on the 17th of January? Somebody witnessed to them. Somebody preached to them. Have a look. At verse 14, this is what has to happen. Well, verse 13, this is again an amazing repetition of that promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's how somebody can become a Christian, by calling on the name of the Lord. But follow the indisputable logic of verse 14. How then, Paul says, can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they, not, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them. In other words, to become a Christian, somebody must call on the name of Christ. To call on the name of Christ, they must have heard the name of Christ. To have heard the name of Christ, someone must have told them the name and the gospel of Christ. How will our friend or our neighbour become a Christian unless we preach to them? Do we have to share our faith? Well, Jesus said to. And if we want to see that graph reversed, then yeah, I think so. The church will not grow unless it's an evangelical church, a church which shares its faith. But that raises a second question, a second objection, that word preach in verse 14. People don't want to be preached to, do they? Is it appropriate? That's the next objection. Surely it's not appropriate to be sort of proselytising in the 21st century. Isn't it appropriate? Not British. Well, I think that that objection assumes that what we're sharing is something that people don't want to hear. But what's Paul talking about sharing? Good news. Have a look at verse 15. How can anyone preach unless they're sent? Verse 15, Paul says, as it is written, how beautiful, not how obnoxious, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring Good news. See, when people become Christians, the gospel that was shared with them that they responded to wasn't like some sort of, you know, 
repulsive cod liver oil that they felt they were obliged to swallow reluctantly, or go on then, gulp, I'll become a Christian. That's not how people become Christians. People become Christians when they see that the gospel which is held out to them is a tonic. That their weary and thirsty soul is craving. And somebody holds it out to them and they go, oh, thank you. Thank you. Let me drink. How beautiful are the feet of the one who shared this good news with me. That's what evangelism is. It's sharing good news. That's what the word means. In fact, it's helpful sometimes to know the meaning of words. Evangelism. In the original uh, biblical Greek, euangelion. The word you, E-U, is, means good, like a euphoria or eulogy. It means good. And then euangelion, well, angel is a, is a messenger. An angel is a messenger. So uh, a euangelion is, the, is a good message. An evangelist is somebody who shares a good message. And that's why I love our... That's why I want to focus on this word evangelism. It's kind of a, a bit of a scary word. I'd love our church family not to be afraid of the word evangelism. I'd love it to become a regular part of our church's vocabulary. That's why I wanted to call him evangelical Evan, because if you've got good news, of course you want to share it. Of course it's appropriate to share good news, isn't it? What's not appropriate is proselytism. So some people, I think, imagine that evangelism and proselytism are synonyms. They're not. Evangelism is a very different thing. Proselytism is trying to convert someone. The, the, the word evangelism, the evangel, the good news, the gospel, that's the word for the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke. They, they are evangelists showing the gospel. That's the word there. That's the biblical word. The word proselytism only appears once in the gospels negatively when Jesus accuses the Pharisees of trying to convert people. Jesus never tried to convert people. Did he? I don't think he did. I think he just simply shared the good news. People either went for it or they didn't. He didn't foist himself upon people, and neither should we. So is it appropriate to share the good news? Of course it is. In fact, it's not really appropriate not to share good news, is it? Imagine if I knew that in the King's Arms pub this afternoon was going to be a half-price Sunday roast. And I didn't tell you. And I went over there after church and had a nice half-price Sunday roast all by myself. You go, hack. It's inappropriate, isn't it, not to share good news? Now, if people don't want to hear, that's fine. But it's definitely appropriate to share the good news. And when people respond to it, they go, how beautiful are the feet of the one who shared it with me? Well, thirdly, finally, I don't know what to say. How? It's hard, isn't it? What do I say? And I think that to be able to share the good news with other people, we have, first of all, got to have experienced the good news for ourselves. We've got to know what that's like to have actually experience the good news we um last week were away uh in wales over new year uh, thank you for allowing me to have a week off um uh we were um d- sort of near the sea and one afternoon i mean it was miserable wet windy wales but one afternoon it was a rather nice afternoon so we thought well let's go down to the water's edge by the estuary and we're just 20 minutes before supper with the kids we're just going to dip our toes in going so you know it'd be nice to pop down to the to the water but actually, it was so nice that we didn't just stay there 20 minutes. We were, the kids were running around, and we were sort of skimming stones, and it was beautiful. It was quite mild, and a real lovely sunset. We ended up being there for ages. By the time we got to uh, leave, the sun had set, the temperature had dropped. And when I got back in the car, I didn't remember quite that the dirt track that we drove down to get to the water's edge being ever quite so steep, uh, or quite so muddy. And when I'd done my 11-point turn to go and drive back up the hill, I realised that we were stuck 
in the mud. And I thought, oh no. And never in all the years that we've owned that old banger of a Volvo on our drive, which the four-wheel drive doesn't work. I've never once bo- bothered about the four-wheel drive. Not, it's never worked. That's why it was so cheap and we bought it in the first place. Well, no, whoever needs four-wheel drive? Well, the one time I thought, well, if only the wretched four-wheel drive would work, but it wouldn't. And, and we were stuck. And don't you think that that's all of us? We're all stuck in the mud. Psalm 40 says we're in the mud, in the miry clay. But the gospel is a rescue. I had to rather sheepishly ask my friend Jack, <coughs> who did have four-wheel drive that worked, and a winch uh, for a rescue. And he was able to reverse up the thing, and he towed us up. And as he winched us out of the mud, I turned to Hannah and said, this has got sermon illustration written all over it. And, um, and, we, and he pulled us to safety. But that's the gospel, isn't it? I mean, look again at verse um, 13. Well, look at verse 9. I love this verse. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he's Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he can conquer not just a mud, uh, a muddy slope, but he can conquer the worst pit that any of us are in, the pit of our own mortality, you will be saved, verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name, that's all we've got to do, call on his name. He'll save us. He'll rescue us. The gospel is a rescue. He's a saviour. He's a rescuer. That's the gospel. So the question is, has Jesus done that for you? Do you know what that's like? Do you know that he's lifted you up, that he's winched you out of the mud? Because if you do, then you've got something to share. Of course you have. You can't help but share it. One friend of mine got, gave two practical tips for sharing your faith. If you want to know how to share your faith, he said, well, think through how you became a Christian. You, know, you can't tell anyone else why they should become a Christian, but you can certainly tell them why you became a Christian if they ask you. And they say, well, what did you get up to at the weekend? And you say, oh, not very much. Don't say not very much. They went to church. Oh, really? You go to church? Oh, yeah. Well, have you always been a Christian? No, well, no, I haven't always been a Christian. Well, how did you become a Christian? Well, if that happens, well, what will you say? You go, well, I don't know what to say. Well, he said, well, think through in advance. Can you get your answer to how did you become a Christian in a nice sort of concise, uh, you know, cut out all the waffle, about a minute. What the, why did you become a Christian? And you, you'll be able to share it. You can't tell someone else why they should become a Christian. That's proselytism. You certainly tell them why you became a Christian. That's evangelism. Or they might say, well, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? And he said the second tip was, well, think through. Why are you a Christian? Can you come up with three reasons? His one says, why are you a Christian? Why, well, why are you? Was there some answered prayer that happened in your life? Was it a sense of forgiveness and peace that cleansed your conscience from the guilt of sin? Is it the hope of heaven which sustains you to live through the trials of life in the here and now? Is it something else? I mean, was it a friend, the, the, the compelling example of a Christian friend who just drew you to the attractiveness of living for Jesus? What is it? What are the three reasons? And if you have those to hand, then you'll be able to share them with others. Well, we better pray.